All right, great souls. We are starting tonight on, uh, let's see, which one is it? Here it is. It's, it's 117. And before we go into that, are there any leftover questions from last week? Yes, my friend Tom, <laughs> whom I love to have in class because he always asks questions. Before and for other get... reasons, too, my affection is not conditioned only by your asking questions. <laughs> go ahead. Before we get to samadhi, I thought I'd ask this question. We're only starting with Savakalpa Samadhi, but you might as well go ahead. Um, It's all very interesting and fascinating to hear about these realities. You know, endless discussion and intellectual stimulation. But I am discovering that when I really consider it deeply... It's beginning to seem like an impossible task. Hmm. Just the whole process. It's so, the fact that all these vortices have that much power over how I behave and how I act and potentially have that much control over me. Um, we bring up the guru. Just hang in there, lad. It'll come. Okay. <laughs> we skip to the. <laughs> Can we skip to the end? Is that really what you're saying? The vortices are beginning to freak you out. The vrittis. Maybe that's. Maybe, yeah. Yeah. The, like, yeah. How the heck are you supposed to? Kriya yoga. Two two words, four syllables. Kriya yoga. Absolutely, you should become totally freaked out by the vrittis. I mean, to use the vernacular. Patanjali didn't use that. You should be totally freaked out by the vrittis because, yeah, if you're just hanging out there with your vrittis, you're sunk, and you're sunk for the whole day and night of Brahma. There's not a chance. Because it just keeps spinning and keeps spinning and keeps spinning. But when you are really sincere about really being tired of that, you are rescued. And you are rescued by the teachings of self-realization, the practice of Kriya, and the grace of the guru. So the, there is a direct relationship about the impossibility of it. And, but until people really grasp the impossibility of it, you're not really motivated to either attra- to have the magnetism to attract those tools or to appreciate what you've got when you get them. And so it, there is a very humbling quality to it. This was not related just to Kriya, but when I was living at Ananda Village in the 70s and and Swamiji was training us very profoundly and directly in what the, the spiritual path really was. You know, very definitely, not just intellectual ideas about it, not just utterly confusing ideas about it, but really solid. And I said to him, how can anybody understand, practice, or make any progress on the spiritual path? Is they're just living you know, out in the middle of Iowa all by themselves, just, you know, reading it out of a notebook. And Swami was frank enough to say they don't. But when they really, really, really want to make spiritual progress, they attract a lot more to them. And so it's sort of like when you really get serious and realize that that you got a lot that you have to deal with, then more opportunities come to you because God is no tyrant. And the other side of that is that those opportunities are not squandered on you if you're not really going to pay attention to them. That's why it's very painful for me to see people who kind of dance in and, you know, think it's good for a while and then just decide to just go off and do something else. It's like, it doesn't, it's not like you get a chance like this. Community, teachers, satsang, you know, just all the things that are given to us And if you just kind of treat them casually, the law of abundance does not keep pouring gifts, you know, down a hole that doesn't uh, make use of them. So even Kriya and the Guru and all of that comes to you when when the ground is fully plowed. And I, I think it helps a lot to contemplate how completely helpless and hopeless this would be otherwise. It also, far from, uh, let me try to think how to say this, well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting balance between extremely depressing and very exhilarating. It's extre- and I was just in seclusion for a week or so, and I was, I, I was doing it on purpose, but I was really trying to, um, I guess the phrase is, get in touch with the extent to which my present-day reactions are just um, dictated 
by deeply held samskars that are no longer realities. So I guess it's the same thing. Just like, you know, attitudes toward people, toward authority, toward myself, toward just everything. Like, where do these attitudes really come from? And it, it is very humbling to realize how much we're just the victim of, of the past. Master says somewhere, something about our consciousness is that all, everything that we do is the result of prenatal or postnatal conditioning. <laughs> which I loved, either happened before you were born or after you were born. But then the the Guru's grace comes in and the practice of Kriya comes in and all the rules change. So it causes you to cling both to those practices and to that grace in a way that you wouldn't if you didn't really know that if you, you can't make it on your own, you just can't. And that's what Swami said to me in that context. You know, when you really, really want help, help comes. And, it, and if you just want to think about it and imagine and not really surrender and not really practice and hope for a shortcut and all those different things, then it doesn't come. Yeah, but it's not, it's not just either or, isn't it a transition period there? Or a kind of a transition period from what to what? Um, do it to I do want to do it. Yeah, you first you um, first you want to want to do it, yeah. <laughs> or maybe you want to want to want to do it, and then you want to do it, and then you do it. Yeah, but um, I perhaps I'm being too flip. We're a mess. We're just a mess. And my personal theory, which you've heard me say, the gospel according to Asha, no. No saint or master has ever endorsed this. So this is just me. This is my working hypothesis, which works really well for me. We're always a mess. We're a mess right to the end. And, but our mess becomes a smaller and smaller percentage of our reality. Yeah, and I just somehow, I think when I go into it, it you know, it's just still as messy as it ever was. But there's just a lot more of me happening around it. There's a lot, a lot more of me that isn't a mess. And so it appears as though there's less that's a mess. Does that make sense? Because it's just still just amazing how uh, things happen. But what one develops is a much more detached relationship with what happens. And so therefore things come and go. Just doesn't, you know, the whole, your whole relationship to your ego shifts because you're living in a much bigger world. And so your ego still um, occasionally does its exceedingly peculiar things, but you have a very distant relationship with us. A few weeks ago, Stephen, when you brought up that very challenging question about Swami's testimony in court and what was he referring to, which I still I don't have any better answers for you than the ones I tried to give you that time, but that is part of the answer, that the reality of who the person is in their own consciousness becomes so enormous that that which seems really big to us is just this little, you know, the fan is completely unplugged and the, and the blade has nearly stopped. But if you're still riding the blade, you think that there's energy behind it, but in relation to the entire consciousness, it's become insignificant. And there's just, there's no way we can understand from the perspective that we live on, except that I myself, that is what, I guess in that sense, I have radically changed. I, I have noticed that I don't identify as deeply um, with the confusion and then the inevitable missteps that come from that confusion, they come and go a lot faster because when they happen, I just have a just... I gave a class last Thursday night at Ananda Village for the leadership series, which, you, since you all are watching it delayed here, that it was live because I happened to be there. And it was called Crisis Management, which was an extremely interesting topic. I've never talked on that before, so it was really a let's sail out there and see what happens... And I started with, which really became the title of the class, quoting from Swami Kriyananda from the Kriyananda phrase book, which is so terrific. And, and his terrific phrase is, these things happen. <laughs> <laughs> and it's how he has responded when people are hysterical about their own or somebody else's enormous misstep. Swami's response has been, well, these things happen. And that's about how much energy you give it. You know, people have karma, and so these things happen. And I, I do realize that that's become much more of my motto, even if I am the 
the transgressor. Hmm, well, these things happen. Wow, look at that. And then, then you don't create vritti upon vritti. You just, one of those little buggers got there and, you know, hit your equanimity, but these things happen. It was so practical, just incredibly practical. Does that help? Does that make sense? But the real answer is Kriya. I mean, that's why after you really understand all of this about the Vrittis and Samskaras and you read Patanjali, then you just go back and read Master's Chapter in Autobiography of a Yogi about Kriya. And you, you really deeply appreciate what he's saying in there about how revolutionary the practice of Kriya is. And it's not that Kriya was invented by a Master, but Kriya was released upon the common man by Lahiri Mahashaya. Prior to that, Kriya was practiced, but only by those who were willing to renounce everything, which probably wouldn't have been us. So, so to launch it on the common man and give the common man the opportunity <clears throat> to, to neutralize his vrittis by the airplane route to God is a, a blessing indeed. We owe, Kriya, we owe Lahiri a big debt of gratitude. Every time you hear that one, oh... Babaji, but there are so many suffering souls who really are not able to renounce the world and they would benefit so deeply from this teaching. Through you, the divine has spoken. Yes, yes, that was all of us just, you know, out there. We're the ones that he saw. But, you know, when you really, really feel that deep in your heart, a whole lot of other things happen. So the despair you're feeling is actually helpful because you're beginning to get the point. Otherwise, we just sail out here. And I mean, I thought, I don't think I really <clears throat> was this naive. But when I, I remember, you know, where I was living when I first started meditating in the little corner of the room where I was meditating. Three to five years, I figured. And then we'd just have this down. Like that. You know, the, the third and the fifth year anniversary just sailed past. I didn't even remember anymore. Just, oh no, this is way different than we thought it was. And at the same time, the way Swami, which we're going to talk about in a moment, talks about Sabakalpa and Nirvakalpa Samadhi here, I was actually, when I was meditating, sitting here, because I am an exceedingly practical person. And I don't sit around worrying about Sabakalpa and Nirvakalpa Samadhi, because I figure when I need to know, I'll know. But here I am, I'm supposed to teach it. And here it is right in Patanjali. So I was trying to think, how can we make this relevant? So we're now going to try. And in the context of what you're saying, realize where we're going and what we're doing. And, and Swamiji, Swamiji is somewhat... Uh, it's hard to talk about him in the past tense. Swamiji was always of uh, two ways the way he would present it. You know, um, I remember once, and I, I'm going to put it on tape now, I rarely tell this story because it was such a moment. This was when his entire house was the Crystal Hermitage Dome. And I was washing dishes, and right up where the uh, entryway into the dome is, his kitchen was right there, and because it was just one room, that upper level was his kitchen. And I was washing dishes, and we were the only two in the dome because it was late, and he was about to go off to meditate. And he just put his elbows on this kind of a little ledge that was there. And he said, Master says that a person can be realized in one lifetime, but really... (laughs) (laughs) sort of left and just walked away. <clears throat> How many could actually do that? That's what he said. How many could actually do that? And then he just walked away. I needed to hear that, actually. It was a very personal message. Because I needed to ground myself in... You see, it's, and this is where he plays it both ways, and yet he's also said, you can be a Jivan Mukta, strive to be a Jivan Mukta, and this lifetime you can be a Jivan Mukta. It depends on who he's talking to. You know, for me, it was also just to realize, just relax, honey, and just take it a day at a time. Because everybody has their level of anxiety. And uh, it's, as I've said once, when I taught Meditation One class, and afterwards I asked people about their meditation experience, and every person in the class presented as their current obstacle to meditation their basic, basically lifelong neuroses, whatever it was. When I meditate, I begin to feel very fear- fearful, one said. As soon as I start to meditate, I find that I want to cry. Another one says, I feel all this anger rising. Another one says, I'm so nervous that I'm doing it wrong. 
you know. And so it's, and what each one was saying to me was once they stopped distracting themselves from whatever's going on, then the sort of ambient undercurrent began to rise. And you become conscious of the fact of what's always torturing you, but you just didn't have a name because you were, as soon as it began to poke you, you ran ahead of it. You know, you ran to television or beer or wherever you run to, or, or friends or movies. And then when you just stop, all of a sudden you find out what's been hovering there the whole time. And I, I think Swami wanted me to calm down, take it a day at a time, don't let my Gemini mind spin way out ahead of me, just relax, honey, it'll be fine. And I mean, I took that really to heart. I thought, okay. To, you know, he does, to me, he hasn't said, you can do it, girl, you can do it. To me, he says, chill, woman, just chill a little. Although he never uses that slang, but you know, that, that was the way. I mean, I know one of my friends, he was always urging her to work more, and he, he cautioned me. Uh, not, that was when he said to me, you won't necessarily do more good by doing more. He told me, keep your magnetism in order. Because my problem wasn't quantity of energy, it was quality of energy. So you see, every, every one is different. So how did that relate to this? So this relates to just, you, you have to, it's all about just getting grounded in your reality and being comfortable there. That, that's it. That was what I really wanted to say. To just find out who you really are and be comfortable there because your spirituality grows like a seed. And it really, if you're trying to skip a few of the layers, you just can't do this. A friend of mine um, had built a little house uh, on the Ayodhya Hill, the, on the same hill where Swami is, and the house fell down the hill. And fortunately, he wasn't in it. House is probably an overstatement. Um, <laughs> cabin, probably, t- tiny, you know, cabin. But it was, it was his dwelling place. And just one day, it just rolled down the hill. And he, he, but he said, it, 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 even though it was extremely inconvenient, because he, you know, assembled the thing himself over a long period of time, he said it was just so... It was such a, a, an image for his spiritual life. He did not have a real foundation on his spiritual life. He was choosing from the top layer of the shelf and putting on what he thought he was supposed to be wearing. And he hadn't really done, he hadn't really mined down and found the substance of who he actually was. Oddly, the more comfortable you get, and I'm going to move into the uh, 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 aphorism now unless somebody else has anything to say. Is there anything else to say? The more comfortable you get with where you are, the more easily you can contemplate samadhi. I found that sort of paradox recently. More recently, when I read these things, whereas before they always just seem so like, um, tell me something that I can work with, all of a sudden I, especially reading this, because there's a, a special dispensation in this whole book, I begin to really understand why you really need to have that as part of your thinking. And why it's, it really is helpful. Okay, so our, our um, sutra, 117, Sam, pram, sam Pragyata Samadhi, sa, uh, Sabakalpi Samadhi is what Master calls it, the state of conditioned oneness is still tied to the various functions of the ego. Okay, and then he talks about these other words that are used that he prefers... Sabakalpa and Nirvakalpa, so I'll just go with him. Um, what it, it's important, and, and he approaches it from several angles. One is people need to understand the difference between yoga, true yoga teaching, and a lot of the other religions in the world. Swami doesn't address it at great length in here, he addresses it much more. I believe it's in the Gita commentary. And he addresses it in his own autobiography, The Path in terms of the contrast between yoga and Christianity and so on. The whole issue being whether or not it's really possible for the individual to merge into the infinite. You know, whether we're really always going to just have to be ourselves and whether this separate individuality is utterly inescapable. And there's a certain amount of teaching, especially in Christianity, where it's, and Judaism, oh my, my, 
it's considered just blasphemous to imagine that the individual can become the infinite. And that's what their big argument is a lot against yoga and why yoga is just really not a good thing. And they like Buddhism better because you don't go to God in Buddhism, you just go into nothing. So even though that's a little confusing in that, according to all the true saints, they say that's a gross misinterpretation of Buddhism, at least it doesn't contradict either Judaism or Christianity. Because you're not really becoming God. Jesus is um, the, the crime for which Jesus was crucified was that he claimed that he was one with the Father. The Father is God in heaven, and Jesus claimed that he was indeed one with God. And the Jews just absolutely could not handle that. And just the irony of the whole thing is that now the Christians can't handle it. Whereas, in fact, what they're really, they're really trying to get deeply into us in the concept of Sabakalpa Samadhi is the beginning of it, Nirbakalpa is the rest of it, is that this whole thing that we think of as ourself ultimately just disappears. And that the only thing that is happening and has ever happened is the power and presence of God. I, when I was on, in seclusion, I was actually, it was a writing retreat more than a meditating retreat. And I was working on editing the, the questions that I've been answering sort of in letters for the last couple of years. And um, they ended up taking a lot of editing to make into a book, which they're going to be now. But, uh, wait just a sec, let me try to remember what I was about to say there. Hold on for a second. Ideas have been escaping from me lately. It's very annoying. Hmm, perhaps I sort of lost it completely. Right, and just about how it really isn't there. In the end, it really isn't there. Well, it is... When it, It's all part of this escaping from identification. You see, when you trace it back, it's because you identify with your behavior that the vritti is created. Oh, I know what I was going to say. People are always asking, you know, why did God make this delusion? And they ask that question, why, why didn't he make it easier? And I was writing out this whole thought, which is re- really the truth. If, if I believed that Chidambar did something that was really uh, hurtful to my well-being, let me imagine that he, he betrayed me in some way, and I became angry at him, despairing over life, you know, just very unhappy, and I went through this long period of suffering. And then I found out that, in fact, he had never done anything at all, that I had just completely misunderstood what had happened, read it entirely wrong, and there was no cause whatsoever. Okay, so is it his fault that I misunderstood him? And if there was never any actual cause for me to suffer, did I really suffer? Well, I appeared to suffer because I anguished over all of this, but there was no cause for that. It was just something that I myself made up. So is it still his fault? And that's sort of what we're, we're playing out all the time with the divine, you see. We, we think that we're separate from God, and because of that se- separateness, all these things happen. People do things to us, we're not appreciated, we're owed an apology, we're mistreated, we're, we suffer in all these different ways. And, and we need to break out of that essential thought that there's even a me to suffer, that the wave is not really separate from the ocean, even though it appears to be. And that when it goes up and has this experience, we think it's had this whole experience but it isn't really. It's just the great ocean at all times. So this concept of sabhakalpa samadhi, nirbhakalpa samadhi, actually are very relevant to our everyday life because we need to start comparing the experience we think we're having over where we're actually going in this. I, I have shared with you, but I'm going to bring it up again, the image that I feel Swamiji gave me shortly after he passed when I, I, I've told you, I was, I was feeling, um, I wasn't enjoying my experience of Swamiji having gone into the infinite. It was not fun for me. And yet at the same time, I felt, I felt a little guilty in a certain sense because I wanted to be very happy for him. 
I didn't want to be a kind of little niggly one about me over here in the corner. I just wanted to be in his joy. So I prayed, can you show it to me from your point of view? Because my point of view is, it's really a drag. So show it to me from your point of view. And since then I've thought about that line in Samadhi, colossal container eye of all things made. And I, I, I had this image that I felt Swamiji gave me in response to my prayer. And he was, had become the colossal container of all things made. I saw him at that point as just the entire ocean. And, and he was now everywhere in the ocean, but the viewpoint that I got was from the bottom of the sea, looking way up there to the surface. I've, I've done some scuba diving, so that's also a visual image I have. And way up at the top of this colossal container, this tiny little door had been open for the last 87 years. And a little bit of the infinite sea has been flowing through that tiny little door. And then what happened when he stopped breathing is that door just went down like that. Now, of course, being over here and being another little door, but being completely identified with the tip of the door, when this door closed, it appeared to me like something really big had happened. But from his perspective, the closing of that door was such a non-event. You know, he was just, and then he just slipped over. And I was, when I was reading these chapters, I realized, wow, that's us, isn't it? And the Salvakalpa Samadhi is when we have entered into that ocean, but we're still, as he puts it perfectly, we're viewing it from the perspective of the wave. He said it, we're, we're looking at the infinite as if through a window, because we're still seeing it from the perspective of the wave. When we enter into Nirvakalpa Samadhi, we have become the colossal container And even though we can still see the wave, we're looking at it from the opposite side. We recognize that the wave is just a manifestation of the infinite, whereas, um, I mean, the the infinite is the truth, the wave is incidental. In the Sabakalpa Samadhi, he says it, and then he puts it out as this great temptation you have to face. Because suddenly you feel your access to this tremendous power, and he describes, well, he, he often has said, that he, that's how he finally understood what happened to Taramata, who was Master's um, very devoted and very advanced disciple, who, uh, you know, he felt she had this Sapakalpa Samadhi, but he feels that she fell from it. I mean, she fell spiritually a little bit because she became conscious of how much power she had, but she was still in Sapakalpa Samadhi, and, and that power began to flow into her own ego. And she, she became, as he even says here, questioned the guru, challenged the guru a little bit. Um, but of course, you can recover from that very fast. Because it, but Swami himself says that he feels some thousands of years ago, and that's what Brigu said to him. You had, you had shanti in your vrittis. They were, you know, your vrittis were com- completely peaceful, but you argued with your guru. I mean, Swampy just says that so casually, you know, he had nothing to hide. He's over it now. But, you know, that's what happened to him then. And he says specifically, you know, you feel yourself as powerful as your guru. He didn't mention Judas in this light, but the thought crosses your mind. You know, that Judas began to, to feel the power, his own power, began to argue with his guru. But if we can ourselves even, why not solve the problem on the biggest possible level? And I'm with you in this. I've never considered this to be a relevant fact. But all of a sudden, with this image of Swamiji, Swamiji opening and closing that tiny little lid, it's like, why can't I live there too? I'll tell you one other experience that happened to me in seclusion, which was just so... I mean, it was deep, but I don't mind sharing it because it was also just marvelous. I was just sitting there, and I had a little picture of Swami in front of me, and when I write, I actually verbalize out loud while I write. I didn't even know I did this until somebody who lived on the other side of the wall in my apartment told me that the entire time I'm in there, I'm going, mm, you're going to get this, mm, 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 like this. <laughs> so talking out loud when I'm alone is really common, especially when I'm writing. So I looked at Swami's little picture, and uh, I said, Swamiji, what am I going to do now that you're gone? Instantly, this thought came, which I'm sure was from him, What makes you think I'm gone? And I said, sir, I was with your corpse for 12 days. (laughs) And then there was kind of like, 
you know, this was an inner conversation. And what he said essentially was, so? Like, what does that have to do with anything? And then this wonderful laugh came out of me, which I felt was also emanating from him. But it's been very interesting for me since then. Because, you know, I, I, I can't say that I've gone through this easily. Some people have said, oh, you know, I've just felt his joy. Well, I felt his joy and I felt my annoyance. I mean, simultaneously. It's just not as much fun and it annoys me. What am I going to do now, sir, now that you're gone? But now, every time that thought crosses my mind, that, that question comes, what makes you think I'm gone? Hmm. Then I have to think, what does make me think he's gone? Well, that he's not going to show up at our house, you know, this, but does that really make me think he's gone? What makes me think he's gone? And, and sort of applying that to what we're talking about now, which is how big the infinite is. What makes me think that I'm unhappy? What makes me think that I've been mistreated? What makes me think that there's anything wrong with what's happening? What makes me think I can't do this? Oh, just You could ask that question to all sorts of things. And, and the answers then get really, really fun. And Swamiji says here, you know, why not affirm early on? We're not affirming in a ridiculous sense, which is deluding ourselves into pretending that we have a state of consciousness that we don't have, but to recognize that that is our reality, and let's see how we can, the way I I would say it is how we can use that greater reality to deal with the present situation. This goes back to Haridas's acronym, remember? Spy dog. Solve problems in direction of God. Instead of solving them in the direction of whatever, Let's just try to, let's try to become the colossal container eye of all things made. And there's been this little experience on the, on the top. That's how I worked with samskars when I was in retreat. Because I was conscious of certain really old patterns that just still keep cropping up. And I, I just tried to context them. Is that a word? I tried to put them in some context that would diminish their power because I hadn't been able to just knock them out of the spine. They just don't go away. So I started seeing them way up there. Just way up there. You know, they're, they're there. They're doing their little bit up there. But their little bit is so tiny. Why do I have to let it define my consciousness? And really, on a very profound level, I felt at least that I had a doorway to freedom that I've really been looking for for a very long time. And that doorway was to go where Swami is, sit with him. And then, see, the, the fantastic thing about this is you're not denying any level of your own reality. And you're not shining it on. I, I've never liked a kind of spirituality that shines it on. I, I like to be very authentic. Authentic is just fundamental to me. I don't have any capacity. I've never been able to lie or pretend, except when I'm acting on the stage. But I can't, in real life, I just can't put on a face. I remember many years ago, I mean, not to my credit, when I was working for Swami as his secretary, and I was in my 20s, and hmm, let's just leave it there. I was in my 20s, and I had a pitta response to a lot of things. And I was some in some public area and I was having a very pitta response. And, you know, I was escalating in my response like this. And someone came up to me like this. You're Swami Kriyananda's secretary. It's really not appropriate for you to behave that way. <laughs> it's really not the way to get my attention. I said, I am Swami Kriyananda's secretary and I am behaving this way. <laughs> you know, because what could I do with that? I mean, it, they were, they were, it was a good advice. It was saying, you know, this is not appropriate what you're doing. They were trying to find a way. But. So I don't like ways that cause you have to pretend or be ashamed. Because what can we do? We grow like a seed spiritually. And if this is the layer that you're at, you're, you just, it's no value to pretend it's not there. But at the same time, really, really, we don't want to either define ourselves or be ruled by it. But there you are, a colossal container with just a little wave having a little fit up here. So it's just having its fit, and you can say that it's having its fit, but it's not, 
It's no longer, it's no longer self-defining or even that relevant. Who cares what's going on up there? And then it doesn't own you in the same way that it owns you when it's just, do you understand? But see, that's also about the Salvakalpa Nirvakalpa. Especially I love, I mean, Swami, he himself, I know him well enough to know that when he saw Salvakalpa Samadhi as looking at the infinite as if through a window, I know that was absolutely given to him by Master, and he must have himself smiled. Wow, that's perfect. Because it really is perfect. All of a sudden you, you can see how you're completely in that reality, but not quite. And you can also see how you could, you know, sort of take it as your reality, but not quite. It would be a little dangerous. But then in the Nirvikalpa, you just step through it. And now there's no self looking at it. You've just entered into the sea and it's all there. But for, from here, when something happens, we can stand in our own reality, but look into the infinite from there and ask ourselves, really, what does this matter? And it it can actually be an extremely practical tool to extricate ourselves. What do I really want? I, I, with some of the samskars that I was, you know, tracing through in my mind, I was was really, I I was making up scenarios. Like, how could I end up with this attitude? What do I think could have happened? And so it wasn't really like I was having past life visions, although I had little pieces of things that I believe are true, but I said, well, what could have created that? And what could have created that? And what could have created that? So that I could kind of like go back as far as I could go to the attitudes that brought me to where I am now. And I realized at one point, you know, this, you're, when you're in seclusion, when you're all by yourself for a while, you, you can amuse yourself in the most peculiar ways at times. You, you find yourself very amusing sometimes. And I realized, and I said it out loud, well, I want somebody to apologize. <laughs> 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 it's like we just carry this feeling that we've been mistreated and we want somebody to acknowledge that. We just want somebody to say, oh, poor you. Or some specific person to say, I was wrong and you were right. And then you sit there and you think, oh, I'm can't be true. This, but you are. This is really what it comes down to. Then you put yourself in the colossal container and ask yourself, really, how long do I want to do this? And really, what difference would it make? Really, what difference would it make? Then I would get to lord it over someone else. Oh, come on, give me a break. But we're playing out these things all the time. You know, this is, this is just silly, but I thought of it you all know that I got a new car because I gave a Sunday service on that. So I drove the new car up to the village. And it was wonderful. And I parked it right outside Swami's dome, which is at the seclusion retreat where I was staying. And I I found myself standing in the window and looking at the lot. (laughs) You know, I would be just looking out at the trees and then my eyes would turn over to my new car and I would just enjoy it like this. And then I left something in the car and I went out to get it. And then I realized after a couple of minutes that I was sitting in my new car (laughs) and I was just enjoying it, you know, just sitting. And then I said, you're in seclusion at the meditation retreat. Swami Kriyananda has just died and you're sitting in your new car. (laughs) And it was just like unbelievable. It's just unbelievable what... And it was completely trivial and didn't make any difference. And then I, I told David later, then I just became so embarrassed. I mean, there wasn't a person anywhere inside. I became so embarrassed that I crept into the house and I endeavored not to look at it anymore. But, you know, it's just like the human spirit, it wants to go outward, it wants to find satisfaction, it wants to identify, it. just all these little things. And you can't stop it, so you have to give it a context. The context is Sabakalpa Samadhi, the context is nirvikalpa samadhi. This whole self just dissolves. And once we get into sabakalpa samadhi, I mean, amazing what he says, and I've heard him say it so many times, but I was trying to really hear it this time. Okay, right now I have, I've entered into this infinite, but I still have the memory of all my past identifications. And again, thinking of my little samskars, you know, I still deeply remember who did me in and when and the bad things that happened when I did that and why I have to always fight against this because it could happen again. And, and it's, all, it's all just running and running, but nobody ever did anything to you. And, and, you know, am I really suffering? 
because I think somebody did something to me? That's so fascinating for me to think about it. In the end, first we look through the window, then we step through the window, and there is only this one reality, and then we run through all those things and let go of them. Then you know, eventually, eventually, why not now? You know, it's starting with the ones that we know. And, and to really just put it in perspective. The, the little wave is still having its little crinkly experience up here, but we just spread out from it. And then we spread out so far, and then we have to go through each one of those little waves and give up each little one of them. I, I, this is not unrelated. Um, David's mother died in her 80s, and he's, a, he's very much like his mother. You know, strong, practical, forceful. She had a stroke at the very end of her life, but just before she had that stroke, she was as sharp as a tack and as strong and as, just as powerful as she had ever been. You know, she could beat you at bridge or scrabble or put the puzzle together faster than you and walk faster than you into the store. And there was, like, nothing in her house that wasn't current. Just nothing. You know, there was not much in her house. Um, she just had the dishes she needed. She had the clothes that she needed, even the family pictures, everything. She had a few. But she, she just stayed up to date, and I really appreciated that. And I always think about that about my karma. Is my karmic closet just full of stuff that I just haven't really gotten around to dealing with? Yes, of course, we have all these vrittis we've talked about. But even in the present moment, you know, if, if, even if we're not there yet, we can go in that direction. We can solve the problem in the direction of where we're really going. And really appreciate... See, this is the, the last little piece of this. And this is why it's important to get this we really do completely go away. We just completely go away. It's not the Christian idea that we get to go up into heaven, which Swami says really sounds to him like hell, just in a body very much like this one with an identity, very much like the ego we have, and then we just kind of sit around at the feet of God for a long, long time. And he says to him, that is not heaven. That really seems a lot like hell to him. Because you're still completely encased and identified with this little ego, which is, the, the, that is the confinement. As a child, I, I had no idea what the words were. It wasn't until I became a self-realizationist in my late teens that I got the words. But the, the experience was vivid. And the experience was that I was so confined. And I didn't know until I became a self-realizationist and that it was ego that confined me. Because my confinement was existential. There was just this feeling that, there was, that I was in a container and I just didn't know how to make that container big enough to contain the happiness I felt was mine by right. Of course, I put all these words back on it. But, but when I, I reflect on what was really going on in my heart and in my head, from my earliest memories until... Somebody handed me Swami Vivekananda's book and I said, this is it. And, you know, it took me about a minute to get on the path. This is it. I never understood what was, what was confining me. And so we, we, that's the question we have to ask. And that's why understanding Sabakalpa and Nirvakalpa Samadhi is really fundamental, even to the beginner. Because what is the point of continuing to polish this individuality. Well, you know, I'm very good at this particular thing, and you know, I've been very forgiving about that, but that, that one was just too much to forgive. And so I'm just going to hold on to it, because anybody would feel that way, don't you think so? I mean, what is the point? Because all of it, all of it, goes away. And then you realize, let's put our energy into the main event here. Let's not waste any more time just going in circles around the edges. Let's put the energy into the main event. And then the last part, which is important, then you get to practice overcoming your fear of that. And that's where he says, meditate in the sitting in the center of infinite space. That's why Master tells us to recite the Samadhi poem every day and just really feel what it really means. just, Just really imagine. It's not merely that this incarnation goes away. All of them go away. The whole 
concept goes away. And uh, then at least, even if you can't go there, you begin to realize, oh, look what's confining me. Look, look what I really feel. And, it, and you become more authentic. You become more conscious of what actual layer of the seed you're working with. You can become more effective in what you're doing. You become less of a mystery to yourself. And uh, it's really very practical. Even though, I confess, I never understood it before. I really do see now exactly why it's always been there and why it always comes up early and why you really do need to think about it because it's your doorway through, all the way through to the end. So, um, questions or thoughts before we take a break? Okay, let's take a short break. And if you have questions, we'll do them after you come back. That is the first class I ever gave on Sabakalpa Samadhi, ever. Like it's now on my left side. I am such a creature of habit. Okay. Master said we should change our habits. Uh, about two inches to your uh, right. Well, that's perfect where you're at. Right? I've got my left heel on, my right heel on the tape. Yeah, that way the master's picture is in the Actually, I'm, you know, I appreciate your exactitude. If I were looking at the camera, I'd be just like you. Okay, let me just see where we are now. I think we've really, even if I haven't done everything, I think I've done that one. Okay. So, any, uh, are we on? Okay. Do we have any questions or comments? Yes, Sarah. Well, you gave a lot that was, and I look forward to that, but it's hard for me. Thank you. There, I hear it. It's still hard for me to relate to everything, but what I think I can relate to is, you said it yourself, I think, at one other time, that how would you like to be like Master and not be afraid of anything? Right. And I can really relate to that, and that, that's the clearest thing for me. Yeah, that's very good. That was an experience that I had that lasted about a split second. I was walking up the stairs in apartment 108, and I was starting up the stairs and the thought crossed my mind, what would it feel to be absolutely unafraid, have no fear of anything? And for just a very brief moment, you know, Master sort of gave me a little peek. And of course my normal consciousness closed right in on me. But it was like, it was that story of how we think this is normal. And we don't have any idea what really, what normal is. Yeah, exactly. Adam? It also came up, I thought, um, I really appreciated what you said at an earlier time that it sort of sounded like what you said tonight about um, sort of feeling guilty for maybe attitudes or habits that you have and then sort of doing like a, like a math equation, like, well, I'm a sincere devotee of this path and I'm doing this, so that must mean that sincere devotees of this path do this. Exactly. You know, it's not sort of like excusing it, like you want to continue it, because you already want to either be out of that habit or attitude, but it's sort of allowing yourself to be there now, so you can stand where you are and work towards it. Work towards rather it. Rather than feeling anxious, because that, that's one of the things I deal with, is that like feeling anxious or guilty is doing anything to solve the problem. Exactly. And remembering that it's doing absolutely nothing but making you feel anxious or guilty. Yeah. And the problem will still remain once you're done feeling anxious yes, or guilty. Yes, exactly. So. You come right back into... Yeah. The other one I thought you were actually going to say is that the number of times that you will be in ignorance is not infinite. And therefore, no matter how many times you make this mistake, it's a finite number. So every time you make that mistake, that's one less. <laughs> That gives me comfort somehow, because the desire for God will be fulfilled. I mean, that once the desire is awakened, which the desire is profoundly awakened, it will be fulfilled, and that means that eventually you'll be completely transformed. So therefore, no matter how intense this is right now, it's doomed. It's doomed by the desire for God. And those are, you know, those are all the ways I, I found that you trick yourself expand the context yeah any other thoughts or questions here all right 
Um, Sutra number 118 says, unconditioned or nirvikalpa samadhi occurs with the cessation of all conscious thought. Subconscious memories of past incarnations alone remain, but no I remains to bind one's consciousness. And this is the drawing the... You know, this is... You have to realize that Patanjali just wrote the sutras and Swami wrote the commentary. So he was just making these statements. Sabakalpa samadhi is conditioned oneness, still tied to the functions of the ego. Nirvakalpa samadhi is when all conscious thought has changed, but the subconscious memories remain. But no new um, karma is being created because there's, there's no I to whom this can be attached. But all that remains is the memory of. And then he... He, he mentions this many times, how few individuals are, are, are completely free. And then he mentions the masters of our path. When he asked Master how many people mentioned in the autobiography were completely free, um, the masters on our path, Swami Pranabhananda, Ram Gopal, Yogi Ramya. I mean, it's important to realize that just partly because a lot of people make preposterous claims these days, and you have to realize that these are very serious things. You know, to be a fully self-realized master is just not, they're not just wandering around on the street. Remember Swami always tells us that story about meeting that man in Big Sur, and how they were talking about saints, and Swami said, I think I've met seven people who really knew God, and as he put it, this big bear of a man sticks out his hairy paw and says, shake, you just met the eighth. (laughs) not very likely, even being very, very respectful. (laughs) But it it also just, it helps us not to be too um, credulous about other people's claims and just really have a a realistic picture. And that also says, though, it's when he writes this completely elsewhere. You know, people can be very high souls, extremely high souls, but still not be completely liberated. We don't have to make these false claims and other people don't have to make them. And then um, one nineteen says, yogis who have not attained the highest state by the time they die remain attached to prakriti, which is nature, owing to the ego's continued identification with with outwardness. He says there are two kinds of yogis, those who have attained their goal and those who haven't. And in truth, yogi means one who is, yoga means union, so really the only people who could truly be called yogis are the ones who have attained oneness, but he allows that we can affirm it. And it was also just a nice thought to, you know, who are we? Who am I? I'm a yogi. And, and that, that, just even that simple little identification, sometimes people ask, what is our religion? And our, we are, our religion is actually that we're self-realizationists, which is a pretty big mouthful. I use it whenever I, we have to do a wedding, and it says, denomination of presiding clergy. <laughs> Self-realizationist, you have to write it real small because it's not a very big place. But still, if somebody asks you, what's your religion? Well, I'm a self-realizationist. But if somebody asks, who am I? Who are you? I'm a yogi. Master wrote that book, Autobiography of a Yogi. A yogi is a person who follows a systematic and scientific approach to attaining oneness with God. And as a generic identification, it actually is a very, very deep and positive thing to call yourself. Because um, it, it doesn't it doesn't say anything about any other aspect, but it defines you right in the center of the only thing that really matters. I am a person who is determined to attain oneness with God, and I am systematically and consistently working toward that. I am a yogi. Nice word, isn't it? Because we often are really caught. I'm an American. I'm a this. I'm a that. I'm a woman. I'm a man. Cuts through all of it. I'm a person who's seeking oneness with God. And I haven't quite crossed over the one who really is, but at least I'm going along the way. But then he also, again, cautions us. Along the way, you can become calm, non-attached, devoted, and all sorts of other things. But if your ego is still identified with outwardness at death, you will need to return to earth to live through it again. So it's also, this is all in related to everything I was saying in the first hour of the class which is the more we identify with that infinite and the less we identify with the wave, just on a solving the problems of the moment. 
I, I, the, the, the battle of life after a while becomes uh, really actually very interesting and not, not very complicated. It's something has disturbed my peace. And I, I say it, after a while, all karma, in a very sense, all vrittis, become quite generic. At first we're extremely interested in them as to what specifically they're causing. And I just told you a long story of spending time when I was in seclusion just tracing certain impulses I would rather not have back as far as I felt I could trace them in imagination or fact to try to just get to the point, just try to demonstrate to myself that there's just no point in holding on to this. You know, it's just, it's not worth it anymore. On the other hand, it really isn't necessary to know anything. After a certain while, you just know that, it's, that some delusion has grabbed me and now I have lost my peace. That's what Swami's talking about in one of the stories that he tells in the path, and it may have also been in this book, but it, it, he repeats it in various places. When he talks about how that delusion seized him, that Master didn't love him or care about him, and how he delivered a bottle of water to the door of Master's apartment, and as he put it, made as much commotion as he could possibly make in the hope of getting Master's attention. And Master was in the other room dictating a letter and absolutely made no acknowledgement of Swamiji's presence out there. And so Swamiji, you know, was very disappointed. He doesn't really love me. And then his mind went worse. Oh, he probably saw me coming and said, quick, let me dictate a letter so that I don't have to deal with that worthless disciple. You know, just the mind was just going completely berserk on him. And he solved it by deciding that I'm suffering and I don't like this. And he went to his meditation room and he simply lifted his consciousness to the point between the eyebrows. I mean, he, with a great effort of will, he lifted it. So that all of a sudden he wasn't on the level in which all those doubts and vrittis and arguments were happening. And he was just suddenly, he'd... he'd he identified with a different reality than the little what about me reality. And then from that perspective, it was self-evident to him that nobody had done anything to anybody, that he had just entirely misunderstood. And so even though he had created this enormous suffering for himself, there was no cause for suffering. Of course, Master has work to do. He can't just stop everything just because I want to speak to him and say hi. Of course, Master loves me. But that's, the, that's what I was calling the generic way of solving it. Instead of really investigating every little thing, you have to, you have, to have a lot of uh, arrows in your quiver, is the way I would put it. And you have to know which one to use at which time. And even when Swami tells that little story, he tried a couple of different things and they didn't work, so he went straight to shifting consciousness. Because it, all problems are the same. Whatever the samskar cause, whatever the karmic cause, whatever the this, whatever the that, what has happened is something has persuaded me that now I need to be unhappy. Now I need to be self-concerned. Now I need to worry about myself. And if we can just move out of that awareness, that was one of Vivekananda's aphorisms that, that put me on the path when I was just before I was 19. Don't think about yourself and you'll be happy. And on one hand, I intuitively knew that that was the absolute truth. And on the other hand, it was the most bizarre koan I had ever read. How could you, I mean, I, I remember I literally thought, what else is there to think about? Just like I thought that the way to ensure my happiness was to constantly calculate my own advantage. That was basically how I thought about it. And I have a very quick agile Gemini mind, so I could always just run those calculations really fast. And it wasn't selfish. It was like, well, should I go with them and, you know, go off to the beach, or should I stay here and have this picnic, or would it be better to go shopping, or, you know, should I stay and help this person? And it was always, you know, what would I like the most, what would work the best? And just in every situation, what would I like the most, what would work the best for me? And I would often be generous. It wasn't like I was really a selfish person, but I was always calculating my own relationship to my life. And I just, that's what I I thought. Well, doesn't everyone, and what else would I do? And it wasn't actually, I mean, I started then, I started then just trying, the only thing I can say is I tried to pry my attention off myself. I didn't really understand japa at that point, continuous prayer or chanting or mantra, but I was sort of hitting upon it 
just trying to occupy my attention with another reality than my own position in relationship to things. But I really learned it when I really got into seva, into service. And I didn't really get into service till a number of years later when I got to Ananda Village and they put me into the kitchen at what was then the meditation retreat, which is still the meditation retreat, but it was basically the only place we had then. And I had to cook three meals a day, six days a week, uh, with one helper who was semi-incompetent. I mean, that's what sort of the situation I got into. And on the seventh day, I drove to town and filled the truck with supplies. And so I was up early and in there late, and I was always on it. And I was just too busy. There was just no space to ask myself, how do I feel? And I was also just having so much fun But there was just no room in my brain to calculate my position and there was no margin in my life to have an opinion because three meals a day had to be cooked six days a week and on the seventh day she had to go to town and buy the supplies. And I began to be happier and happier and happier and happier than I had ever been. And then I kept remembering, ah, don't think about yourself and you'll be happy. Just let the energy run, do the needful, don't calculate your own position and look how happy you get. And, I, you know, from that I began to learn every all karma is just the same. Some of it grabs you so hard sometimes you have to unknot it before you can escape from it. But in the end it's still just the same. It's a misunderstanding on your part and a complete misinterpretation of reality that tells you you think you have to be unhappy. Why bother? Why go there? You know, you have nothing to prove. Do you have a question? You know, what you were saying just a little while ago, the episode that Swami went through with Master uh-huh. and coming to the conclusion that he needed to sit and raise his energy, it, it brought to mind the, the seemingly simple line of Lahiri Mahashaya's, but rather wise, about solving all problems through Kriya. Mm-hmm. And it's, for me, it was a throwaway line for many years because mm-hmm. right. I couldn't quite relate to it. And it dawned on me relatively recently that, oh, it's actually true that, right. in fact, if one is willing to go there, right. one can make tremendous progress. Yeah, that's exactly true. You'll dissolve the vrittis that are causing the upset in the first place. The mere practice of kriya chisels away at the vrittis. And the second is it pulls you out of the... Thoughts are universal, not individual. Yeah. And so if you're at a level where a certain thought is reaching you, it's because you have put yourself on that vibration... And once you're out of that vibration, that thought will no longer be your thought. Even though the conditions that allowed you to imagine it are exactly the same, it will no longer be your thought. Yeah, it's very, very powerful. And it it just got me thinking, and maybe you can tell me whether this is accurate, that that approach is a gyanic approach in that it's, it's understanding at a certain level what wisdom is and trying to draw oneself into that place of wisdom. Yeah. Which seems to me that it's, it's interesting that they're talking about the three yogas, karma yoga, um, bhakti yoga, and jnana yoga, where bhakti and karma are practices of immersion, right. and jnana is a practice of detachment. Um, all of that's true, except you see part of what enables you to lift your consciousness is, is bhakti, because it's the, it's the love of God that... That you draws know, you there. That draws you there. Yeah, yeah. And the selflessness of service also allows you to do it. So it's not quite so neatly separated. Mm-hmm. But yes, in fact, it's the, that's where the wisdom, I would, you know, jnana and jnana, exactly what jnana is, is a little tricky for me to understand because of something Swami said in the Gita, which I'll come back to in just a second. Um, but so I think of it as the eight manifestations of God. One of the eight manifestations is wisdom. And I've often found that wisdom is a really good, it's a really good one for me. Because I'm, I'm, I'm mental, I'm philosophical, I'm intellectual, and I try to be honest in all of those qualities. So sometimes if I'm being intellectually dishonest or philosophically unsound, I can manifest the wisdom aspect of the divine and extricate myself from that confusion. Is and it? the practice of jnana, of course, has to be anchored in devotion. It has to be anchored in devotion. Now, in one of the commentaries somewhere on something, I think it's Krishna defines jnana 
as, this is where he says, be thou a yogi. A yogi works with reality as it is. A yogi works with his physical body, he works with the way the energy is in the chakras, he works with the karma that he has on hand. And in in that commentary, they define jnana as a rejection of any reality but the absolute. And that to me made more sense. It's not, that's why I find the wisdom aspect of God as a more sound way to think about it. Because if jnana is really a rejection of any reality but the absolute, that's why it's a very difficult path. And it's not being intellectual. Yeah, being intellectual is more using the wisdom aspect of the divine to help manifest and, and bring you closer to it. Being a jnani, I think, is really quite different than that. But it's a nuance that I don't understand well enough. But I do think that's part of it. And, and true wisdom would... I mean, if you were truly wise, you would simply recognize that. Right. You're just wise. Yeah. And, and when, when delusion grabs us, we have ceased to be wise. And you can combat it with any of the eight manifestations. Love, peace, joy, calmness, light, sound. But wisdom is one of them. And you're giving a webinar on this, aren't you? Say again? You're giving a webinar this Friday, are you not? Yes, as it happens, I am. (laughs) In fact, exactly. Yeah, okay. Any other questions or thoughts? If there aren't, I'll probably stop now, even though it's a couple of minutes early, because otherwise I have to go into a whole other sutra, and I think I'll save it for next week. So, anything else before we give it up for the night? Okay, Sabakalpa, Nervakalpa, Samadhi, Ho. So next week we start with one... 20. We're actually, I realized, about a quarter of the way through this book, which is quite respectable. We're at class number, we just finished class number 10, so that puts us around 40 classes, which is pretty reasonable. I became curious today, so I did a little counting. All right. Thank you all very much. God bless you.